Hello, sleepy listeners in the Milky Way. This is Space Cat Coco, and you are listening to Sleepy Reads. The Galactic Guppy has selected me to create audio logs of handbooks, manuals, and how-to books from Vintage Earth in a peaceful voice to help Earth humans with focus, sleep, and relaxation. If you are not an Earth human, feel free to listen. This podcast is available to all in the Milky Way. To guide us living safely in the vastness of the Milky Way, we all have access to our own shared universal space transmission unit, also known as SUSTU. SUSTUs are something new for Earth humans. They are sort of like a combination of a computer, robot, phone, and companion. It is required that you always have one with you. If you find that you do not have a SUSTU, you may take a SUSTU compatibility test with any SUSTU. Then, a SUSTU coordinator will come and retrieve you for matches. Well, listeners, it is time for me to record the audio log for this sleep cycle. More talk about SUSTUs for another time. Find a quiet, comfortable space and snuggle up with your favorite snuffleupod. If you would like more information and transcripts, go to spicyponydesign.com. And now, the reading for this sleep cycle, part one of two, The Canadian Curler's Manual, by James Bickett, Secretary to the Toronto Curling Club, published Vintage Earth Year. 1840. Preface. This little pamphlet has been produced at the request of the Toronto Curling Club. The original object in its publication was simply to furnish the members with a copy of the constitution of the club and of the laws which they observe in playing. The design is now extended so as to embrace a general description of curling with a brief history of the game, and by thus making it to be understood by those who have never seen it played or who may have been only occasional spectators, to induce a more general participation and this most healthful and exhilarating amusement. It is gratifying to observe the success of the efforts which have been made in this country during the last few years to promote and encourage the game. It is now becoming, and must become, a favorite in Canada. It is admirably adapted to this climate, 
where the winter is generally cold enough to ensure good ice and seldom so severe as to render the exercise unpleasant. Being played in the open air during a season when few out-of-door recreations can be enjoyed, it is well calculated to counteract the enfeebling influence of confinement to our close and heated winter houses. Many objections which may be brought against other sports are not applicable to this. It calls up none of the low and degrading passions of our nature. Notwithstanding the intense interest which curlers may feel in a well-contested match, no betting ever takes place among them. The excitement arising from gambling, therefore, is altogether removed from the rink. Intoxication on the ice is also unknown among good players. The nice equilibrium of body and the firmness of nerve essential to scientific curling would disappear on the first symptom of such a state but the game is sufficiently interesting without any extraneous stimulant. While it imparts vigor to every limb and every muscle, it engages the attention and awakens the judgment, and thus brings into healthful excitement those powers of the body and of the mind the due exercise of which the Creator has allied with pleasure. In the observations which will be found on the early history of curling, a liberal use has been made of a small but valuable work on the subject, published anonymously in Kilmarnock in 1828. To the same authority, the writer is indebted for the derivation of several of the words to be found in the glossary, and it is only doing the compilers of the work referred to an act of justice, which they can have no wish should be omitted to state that they have availed of Dr. Jameson's Dictionary, Brewster's Encyclopedia, and An Account of Curling by a member of the Duddingstone Society. These, unfortunately, are not at present accessible to the writer. During the present year, he ordered from Edinburgh such publications on the game as could be found but was disappointed on learning that several excellent treatises which he expected to receive are now out of print. The only works which his correspondent could procure being the annual of the Grand Caledonian Curling Club and the Rules of Curling by Pretostes.
the writer has affixed his name to this work, conceiving that from his official connection with the Toronto Curling Club since its establishment, this may lend some weight to the opinions and some authority to the statements therein contained. Toronto, 30th of November, 1840. Part 1. Curling is a game played upon the ice by sliding stones made for the purpose from one point to another. In some respects, it resembles bowling, but with these differences, that the stones are slidden upon the ice, not rolled. Neither are they made like bowls to curve on their passage. The points also to which the stones are played are stationary, whereas in bowling, the jack is movable, and in curling, the ice in the path of the stone may be polished by sweeping, and thus the players may compensate for the want of force with which a stone may have been thrown. Pennant, in his tour through Scotland, gives the following rough description of the game. Of all the sports in those parts, that of curling is the favorite. It is an amusement of the winter and played upon the ice by sliding from one mark to another great stones of 40 to 70 pounds weight of hemispherical form with a wooden or iron handle at top. The object of the player is to lay his stone as near the mark as possible, to guard that of his partner which has been well laid before, or to strike off that of his antagonist. Such is a brief outline of that game, a fuller description of which is attempted in the following pages. Stones. These are made of granite or of any other stone which is hard, free from sand, and not liable to break. They are cut into a spherical form, flattened at top and bottom, and the angles rounded off and polished, particularly that at the sole. The handle is inserted in the top. Though they must all be made circular, the proportion of the diameter to the thickness varies in different districts, some being made more and some less than twice as wide as they are thick. The Grand Caledonian Curling Club has lately suggested the following scale. The first attempt that has been made to regulate the proportions of curling stones, and which, for the sake of uniformity, it is hoped will be adopted. When the weight is under 35 pounds imperial, the height not to be more 
then four and one fourth inches. 38 pounds, four and one half inches. 41 pounds, four and three fourth inches. 44 pounds, five inches. 47 pounds, five and one fourth inches. 50 pounds, five and one half inches. Whatever be the diameter or weight, the height ought never to exceed six and one eighth inches, nor be less than four and one fourth inches. None ought to be allowed in a set game of greater diameter than twelve inches, nor of a greater weight than fifty pounds imperial. Stones are sometimes so finished as to slide on either of the flattened surfaces, one of which in such cases is made slightly concave, and on this side the stone is played when the ice is hard and keen, the other a little convex, being used when the ice is soft and dull. In some parts of Canada, where the suitable stone cannot readily be procured, iron or wood has been substituted. At Quebec and Montreal, castings of iron in the shape of curling stones are played with, the intensity of the cold there rendering the stones liable to break on striking against one another. Iron is used also by the curlers of Dundas in the Gore district, and at Guelph, where the game has some ardent admirers, they play with blocks of hard wood. At Toronto and the curling localities in the neighborhood, stones only have been used part having been imported from Scotland and others having been made by the stonecutter to the club from blocks of excellent quality picked up by him on the land in the vicinity. Several of the stones imported to Toronto have been made from Elsa Craig, which, it appears, has been long known as an excellent material for the purpose. One of those now referred to having been played with by the father of the present owner at least 60 years ago. The rink. The ice on which the game is played is called the rink. This should be a sheet of 50 yards in length and 4 yards in width perfectly free from every inequality. At the distance of four yards from each end of the rink and in the middle crosswise, a circular hole is made about an inch in diameter and in the same in depth called the T. Round the T, two or more circular lines are drawn. 
the largest having a diameter of about five feet, the other smaller and at intermediate distances. The space within the largest circle is called the broth. The use of the circular lines is to shoo. While the game is being played, the comparative nearness of the stones to the tee, actual measurement not being allowed until all the stones have been played to one end of the rink. A line is also drawn across the tee at right angles with the rink lengthwise and extending to the outermost circle, the use of which will be shown in the remarks relating to sweeping. At the distance of seven yards from each of the tees, a line is drawn across the rink called the hog score, and stones which on being played do not pass the score are called hogs and lose for that time the chance of counting, being distanced or thrown off the rink. Playing. When the player is about to throw his stones, he places himself at one end of the rink, rests his right foot in a notch or hack made in the ice, and in such a relation to the tee that when he delivers his stone, it must pass over it. He is directed by one of the players of his own party, styled to skip, who stands at or near the tee to which the stone is to be played, and who usually makes use of his broom to indicate the point to which or the line along which he wishes the stone to be played. Should the stone be delivered with the proper degree of strength and in the direction pointed out to the player by the skip, it will either rest at the spot required or receiving, as the skip intended, a new direction by coming in contact with some other stone will affect the desired purpose. The player on delivering his stone raises it off the ice and swinging it once behind him to acquire a proper impetus and to make sure of his aim, keeping his eye at the same time steadily fixed on the broom of the skip or on any stone or other object towards or against which he may be desired to play, throws it in that direction. The stone reaching the ice on its sole about two feet in front of the player, his body naturally following the same direction until the stone be fairly delivered. Number one, other contrivances 
that the hack are used in some places to prevent the foot of the player from slipping. Sometimes a thin board is laid on the ice on which he places both his feet. At Toronto, the hack is considered the best, and although the club has crampets for the benefit of those accustomed to them, they are required only by strangers or novices experienced demonstrating their uselessness. Sweeping For the purpose of sweeping, every player is furnished with a broom by means of which the ice may sometimes be so polished that a stone may reach the tee, which, without sweeping, could not have passed the hog score. When a stone, therefore, in its progress up the rink appears to the skip to have been thrown with insufficient force, he directs his party to sweep the ice in its path, the party opposed to that whose stone is coming up is not allowed to sweep in front of the line drawn across the bra, but may sweep behind it so as to let the stone, if it should pass the tee, go far enough beyond it to lose the chance of counting. The brooms used in Scotland are usually made of broom, sometimes of birch twigs, and occasionally of heather, as one or other may be found most convenient to the place of playing. In Canada, corn brooms, which have been used for domestic purposes, a sufficient length of time to be stripped of the knotty parts which might break off and obstruct the progress of the stone, have been found to be the best. Some curlers in Scarborough, near Toronto, who have immigrated from Lanarkshire, have imported stocks of the genuine Scotch broom, which, under their cultivation, thrive so well as to promise to supersede the use of every other material. And now, the interlude. Moondauber Delights presents Popovers. One cup flour, one-fourth teaspoon salt, seven-eighth cup milk, two eggs, one-half teaspoon melted butter, Mix salt and flour, add milk gradually in order to obtain a smooth batter. Add egg, beaten until light, and butter. Beat two minutes using Dover egg beater. Turn into hissing hot buttered iron gen pans and bake 30 to 35 minutes in a hot oven. They may be baked in buttered earthen cups when the bottom will have a glazed appearance. Small round iron gem pans 
are best for popovers. This recipe was found in the Boston Cooking School cookbook. Copyright Vintage Earth Year 1910. And now back to the Canadian Curler's Manual. The game. The usual mode of playing the game is with 16 stones on a rink. This number is sufficient to impart interest to the playing and more wood towards the end of the head crowd the ice. Sometimes these are played by four players on each side, playing two stones each, which mode may be preferable when a few only are exercising for practice. But in such case, the sweeping, which, unless the ice be very keen, is essential to success, can never be properly attended to, as the skip and player being sufficiently occupied in their own departments. Only two brooms can be effectively employed at the same time. The most interesting game, therefore, is where there are 16 players on a rink with one stone each, eight players on each side, and a game so played is now to be described. The parties determine by lot which is to have the ice, or, in other words, which is to play the first stone. It is doubtful whether it be an advantage to win the ice as the party who loses this play the last stone. The most important in determining the result of the head, the side who wins the end, plays the first stone on the end following. The skip of the party who is to play first, stationing himself on that tee towards which the stones are to be thrown, directs the player who is to lead or play the first stone on his side. When this stone is played, the skip of the opposite party takes the same post, pointing out to his first player how he wishes his stone to be played. Each side plays one stone alternately, and the object of each successive player is to draw nearer the tee than any of his opponents, to strike out their winning shots, or to guard the winners of his own party. The earlier stages of the end, therefore, appear simple enough, but after the first eight or ten stones have been played, especially when they have been played well, the game becomes more intricate and more interesting. One party may have a stone covering the tee, apparently guarded on every side, and impregnable to attack. 
the stones of their opponents having only strengthened its position. Yet some stone which either from a ruse on the part of the director or from being badly played has rested near the edge of the rink and seems to be lost for that end may furnish a point to which another stone may be slidden, and receiving thence a new direction may reach the winner, and removing it from the tee become itself the winning stone. The director generally plays the last stone on his own side. The seventh player is usually appointed to that position in the order of the game or account of his being a correct and powerful player, so that he may, when necessary, open up a path for the stone of the hind hand. When the stones are all played to one end of the rink, the game is counted, and every stone which either party has nearer the tee than any stone of their opponents counts one shot or point, and such portion of the game is styled an end or head. The number of shots in a game is variable, depending on agreement. The Toronto Club usually play for 31 in a regular game, and in their matches among themselves or with the Scarborough Curlers, when more than one rink has been engaged, the practice has been either to play to an hour specified or to stop before that hour should the aggregate shots of either party on all the rinks collectively amount to 31 for each rink. In Scotland, where the continuance of the curling season is very precarious, all who have it in their power play the whole of every day while the ice will permit and consequently the number of shots played for is more uniform. At Toronto, where curling may be practiced almost daily, fully three months in the year, the rink is resorted to for one or two hours recreation, and seven, thirteen, or twenty-one shots are frequently fixed on as the game according to the time intended to be devoted to the exercise. Laws of the Game In every district of Scotland and almost every club, some differences are to be found in the mode of conducting the game. Little difficulty, however, is there experienced from the want of written laws the lex non scripta of every parish or county being perfectly understood where it is in force. Still, in Edinburgh and a few other places where curlers from distant clubs are likely to meet, 
it has been found necessary to have their laws reduced to writing so that from whatever part of the country the player might come, he could not be ignorant of the rules by which his playing was to be governed. At Toronto, the want of a written code of laws was for a number of years felt to be inconvenient view of the original curlers having been accustomed to play exactly according to the same system. It was, therefore, one of the first objects of the Toronto Curling Club after its formation to draw up a set of rules founded on the prevailing practice in Scotland. The following, therefore, were agreed to, and although not applicable to every case that may be conceived, they have been found sufficient to decide satisfactorily every difficulty that has occurred during the experience of four years, and have been cheerfully agreed to by the Scarborough curlers in their matches with those of Toronto. First, the rink to be 42 yards from T to T, unless otherwise agreed upon by the parties. When a game is begun, the rink cannot be changed or altered unless by the consent of a majority of players and it can be shortened only when it is apparent that a majority cannot play the length. Second, the hog score must be distant from the T one-sixth part of the length of the rink. Every stone to be deemed a hog, the soul of which, when at rest, does not completely clear the score. Third, every player to foot so that in delivering his stone it shall pass over the tee. Fourth, the order of playing adopted at the beginning must not be changed during a game. Fifth, curling stones must be of a circular shape no stone to be changed during a game unless it happens to be broken and the largest fragment of such stone to count without any necessity of playing with it more. If a stone roll or be upset, it must be placed upon its sole where it stops. Should the handle quit, a stone in the delivery, the player must keep hold of it Otherwise, he will not be entitled to replay the shot. Sixth, the player may sweep his own stone the whole length of the rink. His party not to sweep until it has passed the first hog score, and his adversaries not to sweep until it has passed the tee. The sweeping to be always to a side. Seventh, none of the players on any account 
to cross or go upon the middle of the rink. Eighth, if in sweeping or otherwise a running stone is marred by any of the party to which it belongs, it must be put off the rink if by any of the adverse party it must be placed agreeably to the direction which was given to the player, and if it be marred by any other means, the player may take his shot again. Should a stone at rest be accidentally displaced, it must be put as near as possible in its former situation. Ninth, every player must be ready when his turn comes and must take only a reasonable time to play his shot should he, by mistake, play with a wrong stone. It must be replaced where it stops by the one which he ought to have played. Tenth, a doubtful shot must be measured by a neutral person whose determination shall be final. Eleventh, the skips alone shall direct the game. The players of the respective skips may offer them their advice, but cannot control their directions, nor is any person except the skipped to address him who is about to play. Each skip may appoint one of his party to take charge for him when he is about to play. Every player to follow the direction given to him. Twelve. Should any question arise, the determination of which may not be provided for by the words and spirit of the preceding rules, each party to choose one of their number in order to determine it. If the two so chosen different in opinion, they are to name an umpire whose decision shall be final. Number two, the Grand Caledonian Curling Club recommend that rinks have double T's at each end the one at least two yards behind the other, the whole four to be nearly as possible on the same line. The stones are to be delivered from the outer tee and played towards the inner. This saves the ice from being injured around the tee played up to. Number three. With regard to double-soled stones, the Grand Caledonian Curling Club has a law that the side commenced with shall not, under forfeiture of the match, be changed during the progress of the game. Number four, an excellent method of obviating the confusion which is sometimes experienced in the early ends of a game by players being doubtful of their places is that before commencing, the players on each side of a rink should fall in 
in the order in which it is intended they shall play and number off from right to left. The player who makes a mistake after this has been done is fit neither for a curler nor a soldier. This method has been practiced at Toronto since the winter of 1837 through 1838 when military terms and ideas were infused into every department of life. When a few players are curling for practice or recreation, some of the above laws may not be rigidly enforced, but any relaxation should always be noticed so that there be no difficulty in strictly adhering to them when playing a bonspiel or set game. The end of part one of two, the Canadian Curler's Manual. If you are on the Ice Cream Nebula rec station and would like to try sliding or skating, there is an ice arena in the activity dome. The simulator units have various programs of ice games and practice scenarios. Check with your SUSTU to see the ICE program catalog and make reservations. That is all for tonight, Milky Way listeners. Have a good sleep cycle, rest well in your space, and ignore all piles of socks. Thank you for listening. You can find Sleepy Reads in your favorite podcast app or wherever you listen to podcasts. Sleepy Reads is produced by Spicy Pony Design. For more information and transcripts, go to SpicyPonyDesign.com.